What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. How many of you, given the opportunity, would jump at the chance to buy a piece of property or a real estate deal with all cash and have no debt in the deal at all? I mean, I know how much we all love working with banks and making applications for loans and things like that. How many of you, if you had a chance to sidestep all of that, would jump at that opportunity? Now, you've heard a lot of people talk about leveraged returns and how you have to use debt when you're buying property in order to get those enhanced returns that you get from leverage. And you also might think about, you know, would investors, if you're working with investors, if you're looking at, you know, deals and you want to bring investors on board, are investors going to turn their nose up at a deal that is all cash, that has no debt involved at all? Well, my guest this week, that is exactly what we're going to be talking about because all the deals he does, and he's bought over 100 properties in the Chicago area, um, all of these properties he buys with no debt, all cash, and far from struggling to raise money from investors, he manages to syndicate these deals out to about 70 investors, and he does it all in the space of about two weeks. Why does he do it that way? Well, I'm going to let him open up and explain some of that. But I think there is an absolute ton of value to be got from our guest this week. My guest this week is Joel Friedland. Now, Joel is an expert in the industrial real estate area, and he is hyper-focused, um, as he calls it, laser-focused on the Chicago area. And when I we're going to talk about what laser focus really means and how you can narrow your interest in a particular area to just to become an absolute expert in that area. We're also going to talk about how the term deal junkie is often bandied around as some sort of badge of honor when in fact it it, it is really code for compulsive gambler and how it can easily go wrong for you if you do happen to get caught up in that mindset. This episode is going to cover why industrial property is so attractive and what makes it such a great investment. We're going to talk about resilience and how you can bounce back from challenges in your life. And we're going to talk about sales and the attitude you need to bring towards the sales process. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, my conversation with Joel Friedland. Joel Friedland, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gavin. Nice to see you. It's great to have you here, uh, Joel. And the uh, you know you you uh, you're based in the U.S. and we'll get into a little bit of that in a in a few minutes. But as you know, we have an international audience, a lot of different people around the world listening in. And so, for anyone who does not know what you do, um, please just give us a little thirty second elevator pitch. What it is you do. Sure. So in 20 words or less, uh, we have industrial buildings in the Chicago area only, B and C, smaller buildings, and we buy them all cash, no mortgage. And I've been doing this for 40 years, and I uh, can't tell you how much I love industrial real estate. Well, we're going to get into that because that was one of my questions I have is, I'm going to I'm going to be asking you to explain the advantage of, advantages of it because uh, I know some of the advantages but I'd like to hear it from you um and um, but before we do that Joel let's go let you know take us back to the beginning of your career you you're coming out of university or school or whatever like what what sort of possessed you to enter the real estate game <laughs> Sure I went to the University of Michigan uh where I didn't really take any real estate classes. I mostly was in the liberal arts classes. I wanted to learn about the world, about philosophy and history and economics. And I graduated and 
I knew I was going to go into sales of some kind. And I found a family, not my family, that owned 84 industrial buildings in the Chicago area, 6 wow. million square feet worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And I knew who they were. And I called them. It was a father, two sons and a daughter. Their last name was Podolsky. And I called them and I talked to Mr. Podolsky. I didn't know there were three of them, <laughs> but there were. And I interviewed and I got hired in 1981. They had uh, 10 vacancies because the economy, the worldwide economy was a disaster and interest rates were super high and inflation was really high. Interest rates were 17%. And they said to me, we'd like you to fill up our 10 vacant buildings as a sales rep, as, a, as an agent. And I had my real estate brokerage license and I went to work. And independently, I figured out that going door to door in industrial parks, even on the coldest freezing days in Chicago, I'd park my car in an industrial park and I'd walk from door to door and I'd ask uh, the receptionist in each building, who do I talk to about whether you guys might, might want to move to a vacant building down the street? I can give you a really nice deal. And I did that over and over and over again. There's 16,000 industrial buildings in Chicago. And since then, I probably have been to 15,000 of them. Wow. It's got laser focus. So it's a great party trick. I go to a wedding and I'm sitting next to someone and I say, so what do you do? He says, I manufacture uh, parts for uh, airplanes. And I say, oh, okay, where do you do that? He says, I'm in Elmhurst. I said, oh, oh, you're uh, ABC company on Industrial Drive, right? And, he's, and they, he looks at me, he goes, you stalking me? <laughs> How do you know that? And I'm able to do that all the time because I just know the market so well. And what I've done is I've turned, I left the family on very good terms and my mentor there, Steve Podolsky, uh, and I have invested in many, many deals together. He's still my mentor, even though I went and started my own company. Right. And we've bought 100 buildings over the years. Uh, we've sold 80 of them. We've got 20 left. And we syndicate. We're syndicators. We have 250 investors. Our minimum investment in any deal is $25,000. And every time we buy a building... Steve and I and another fellow, Nate Wagner, who's 96, uh, and a group of six others, we're the committee that decides what we want to ask about the property to do really great due diligence so we don't make a mistake. And then we'll buy the building with our own money, and then we'll syndicate it after we own it. Got it. Yeah. Take control. So that's our model. <laughs> nice model, yeah. And you you mentioned that you, you don't take mortgages, so... A big feature of this is that you do not go near debt or anything like that. Uh, I'm I'm kind of reading between the lines that that's uh, from the 2008 experience potentially. Yeah, I was uh, devastated by 2008. 2008 was disastrous for me and for my investors. At the time, I had 50 buildings, I had 50 right. loans, and I had guarantees on all of them. I had also put together a promissory note fund, which I stress is something that nobody should ever do because when you promise someone a return, you have to figure out how to get that return if things go bad. Yeah. And I was un unable to do that. And I had guarantees on all the promissory notes also. So I was a, just a mess. Um, I couldn't get out of bed. I thought I'd lost everybody's money. And I worked very hard for many years to come back from the brink and I learned that I do not, in my current situation, my current age level, and by the way, my investors' age levels, we're all 50 plus. There's a few younger ones, but we don't want to lose our money. We've already been through that. Your risk so tolerance is, yeah, you've got a yeah. different risk horizon to the to the younger generation. Yeah. So when I've I told my accountant, we're going to do all these all cash deals. And he said, well, no one will invest. Real estate is a leveraged business. And I said, then I need a new accountant. Because <laughs> <laughs> I need someone who's going to support the idea that there are people in this world who are so risk averse that all cash, no debt real estate actually appeals to them. You're actually, I think you're onto something there, Joel, because I've got a number of listeners 
who've written to me and anytime I share anything about my you know backstory where I've lost a lot of money in 2008 and just the like I was in a horrendous place very much like yourself for about six years and I, I was actually negative equity for about five of those years and suddenly then it started to come back above water and I remember thinking to myself wow you know I didn't think I'd ever get back to this level of you know zero was actually like a welcome level to achieve and um i can remember though speaking since then every time i've shared that story i've had people messaging me saying i got caught as well i got burned and they all say pretty much the same thing that they buy everything now debt free they won't touch the banks they they prefer to own two properties outright than 10 properties where you own you know a small percentage and the bank owns the rest and obviously they know that they're giving up a certain amount of the leveraged returns that you get for that, but you can sleep at night. Yeah, I, I was really in trouble. Uh, I, I, when I say clinical depression, I mean, as bad as it gets. My parents uh, at the time were both alive and both uh, therapists. Okay. They didn't even know what to do with me. I was on that couch back there and I couldn't get off. And it required a change of mindset that was not easy to achieve. I had to get uh, mental health assistance. So I found both a therapist, uh, a psychologist, and also a psychiatrist. And I ended up trying meditation and medication and um, all kinds of techniques to just try to climb out of the hole. It's not easy. I, I, I can relate to what you're saying. Um, and what I found worked for me was exercise. I actually found that going bonkers on a, you know, running or taking up some sort of a extreme sport like climbing mountains or whatever, just that really was the outlet I needed to just get away from it all and just like try to forget about it for a period of time. And you'd always come back to the stressful emails and things like that, but at least you've had a break from it for a while, you know? Yeah, my, my best break was actually, I went to Florida um, to Palm Beach Gardens near where you mentioned your brother lives nearby. And my wife and I and our kids went to visit her parents. And the weather was beautiful. It was over Christmas break. And it was an escape. And I thought, boy, we should move to Florida because I feel better here. But <laughs> it was really nothing more than just a respite. It was just a couple of weeks of getting away from what was back home that I couldn't run away from. Mm. And I was like you, I, I, I had a negative net worth. I had banks, I had seven banks that were all giving me forbearance agreements to not have to go into foreclosure and try to work it out. It was, it was really rough and I did work it out. It was every day was a challenge. It just, I used to literally no joke, I was so devastated. I could barely stand up sometimes. And I was mm -hmm. at my office and I closed the door and I would lie down on the floor and try to take a nap under my desk just because I couldn't, I just couldn't keep going with the negativity that was swimming around in my head. And I learned so much from that experience. Never again. I, I don't want to repeat that pain. And so yeah. one of my goals is to make sure that my investors and I uh, don't go into situations where even in the worst of times that we'll be overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for it. And it's um, it's funny, you, the fact that you're saying this now. My guest just about a week ago was uh, ja <clears throat> Zaf, um, who's based in the UK, but he got himself into trouble. He's He's in his 40s now, but he's just about turning 40. But he got himself into deep trouble with a personal guarantee. And um, and so I think a lot of people are resonating with just the, the stuff that can go wrong. And particularly now that the economy has become more challenging with higher interest rates and things like that, I think people are suddenly waking up to the reality that, whoa, you know, the, the, that 0.1% interest that I was paying, like <laughs> those days are gone now for a period of time, you know, and we got to, you know, basically get ourselves mindset ready for some challenging years ahead, I think. I'm going to take you in a different direction, something that you probably didn't anticipate. And I didn't think I was going to go here because we got deeply into the emotional turmoil question. 
I have come to the conclusion that people can be in business and be successful and not be super risk takers. They can actually work really hard and be very careful, be very diligent. But there are some people who, in in my opinion, become compulsive gamblers in business. This is very, this is an extremely important subject to me. I have a friend who was a stock trader and he got into severe trouble because trading's good when it's good and it's bad when it's bad. And the problem is when you're a trader, you have a certain limited amount of money. And when you're playing at a casino, the house has unlimited money and they have to stay open all the time. So the economy is like a casino where they own the casino and we're just the players. And if the economy goes bad and we don't have unlimited funds, of course, we can land in that place where a compulsive gambler literally gambles away all their money. And one of the reasons that it is so bad for them is because they don't realize that the decisions they're making are impulsive as opposed to well thought out with good judgment. And those impulsive decisions, which they're making over and over, can literally put them where I was and where you were in this terrible position and where emotionally they're wrecked. And that is really something that I've seen. And I've seen it in real estate. And to an extent, I feel like I was that way until 2008 because things were so good that I kept adding more and more buildings and more and more investors and debt. And I was building this big thing And when you build a big thing, it's very vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how vulnerable I was. I didn't even think I was taking risk. I thought, oh, I know my business. But this gambling thing, you know, when people say I'm a deal junkie, that's bad. You don't want to be anything junkie. And through a series of friendships that I have, I've gotten to know a lot about addiction and how serious it is. It's life and death, whether it's drugs. Drugs, alcohol, gambling, gambling, overeating, sex. I mean, there's a whole list. And there are all these programs that people can go to and work the 12 steps and become more self-aware and really better. They work on their character defects in the 12-step program. And I I love that stuff. I, I eat it up. There's a an American woman who is a researcher on the subject of shame and vulnerability. Her name is Brene Brown. I know Brene, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love her because she talks about what I forgot that I should have been thinking in 2005, six, seven, and eight, which is I'm vulnerable and I don't want to do anything that I'm going to be ashamed of. So I have to really think better. I have to be a better, better shepherd of my investors' money just a, a better thinker. Yeah, I think what you've said there is absolutely spot on, Joe, because I can relate to it. Like I think looking back now, I was a an a, like a an addicted, you know, gambler as well. I was literally, you know, friends would come to me with a deal and I would jump into the deal uh because it was like, well, you know, what else am I going to do? Uh, you know, and the thing is is what, what I say to, because I have a couple of coaching programs now that I give uh, to try to kind of steer people away from this, is that when you're in, when you've had s- some success after success after success, it's very easy to get into this mindset that anything you touch will will turn to gold. And the the habits that you have when you're in that mindset, it's, as you say, it's impulsive and it's, you know, you're not thinking straight, you're you're acting on you know just impulse and the the decisions that you make in those moments they can actually establish your future years before you get there you know you've done the damage but you don't even realize it because it's years until there will be some sort of a wobble in the economy when it'll all suddenly become clear that you've actually you're in this position and this is the worst thing is is that the impulsive decision making and the kind of sharp kind of oh, I'm doing great I'm moving quickly all of that suddenly comes home to roost very very abruptly and when it does you're so overwhelmed that the quality of thought and stuff 
that allowed you to become successful in the first instance is no longer there. You can't tap into that anymore because you're feeling a sense of complete overwhelm. So it is a very valuable insights, I think. Yeah, it, it causes calamities in people's lives. There are people who start to get some really bad habits like lying to themselves and then lying to their wives or their husbands and their kids and their partners. And there's this justification process when you think you know a lot because there's no humility. And the humility when it's missing literally can kill you. I, I know people who who are not living because they got into so much trouble. And what happens is when you get into that mindset, it becomes very easy to become a big shot. Fancy yeah. car, fancy house, fancy country club, fancy vacations, nice boat. And when you build up that kind of a lifestyle and you're really on the edge, you know, I don't know who we're trying to prove something to, but the, the idea of spending money to look successful along with being in a gambling mentality, it just, it is like a car speeding at 120 miles an hour. Yeah. And that doesn't end well. Uh, it just doesn't end well. And so I'm, I'm really interested in hearing, you know, from people that I talk to, what, what's your biggest vulnerability? And then here's the real thing for me. It's, um, I've, I have a technique I use and it's called WAIT, W-A-I-T. It's a tool and it stands for why am I talking? And every time I'm about to open my mouth, I try to remember, wait a minute, ask a question and listen carefully. Don't be a know-it-all. Right? We have such a tendency when we become successful to become these know-it-alls. <laughs> and it's just Yeah. And you're and and rather than listening to the other person, you're waiting for the gap for you to jump in with your opinion. <laughs> exactly. You might not even hear what they said because you're so ready. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I see all these slogans. I love the slogans. Take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Joel, let's let's bring it back. Uh, I mean, that I think is a very worthy detour, but let's bring it back to some real estate. Um, I wanted you to, you know, explain when, when you started out, that that point where you decided to to work for yourself. You would you were working with the Podolskis. And they had a very, very big portfolio and all that. But at some point, you decided to jump ship and, and and start on your own. What was that like? It was great because the Podolskis actually helped me. They invested with me in my first syndications and put up a third of the money. Oh, nice. And even though I left their company, we remained very close friends. And they told me that I could call their investors. They had a at least a hundred investors. And they said, we'll give you a list of people that we think might invest with you. And you can tell them that we sent you. And I did that. And then I raised money from a group of my old clients. I was uh, as a broker for many years working for them. I built up some really great relationships with owners of uh, industrial companies. Right, right. People who manufactured products and people who distributed products. And so I went to each of them and I said, hey, I'm, I'm buying a building. It's a $2 million deal and we'll put 50% debt on it. So we're going to raise a million and let's do it for 50,000 each. I'll put in 50,000. Each of you put in 50,000. And some people would say, well, that's too small for me. I'll put in 250. And others would say, that's too much for me. I'd like to put in 25,000. Yeah. And I went around putting together all these deals. And the thing that, I, I know that works is giving a good yield yeah. for a long period of time. And so I've discovered that the yield that everybody likes in my deals is 8%. That's the number. If I can find a deal where after paying all the expenses, the rent comes in, the expenses get paid and we make 8%, that deal I can syndicate literally in two weeks to 70 mm -hmm. people. And the great thing about it is that at that level, you just it continues to grow over time. 
the you know it, it after how many years suddenly you've pretty much kind of got your money back you know <laughs> yeah yeah and one of the things that i think you'll find to be sort of an unusual statement is that investors just trust me they don't really care what the deal is if i say this is a good deal it's not about the deal although our conversation each time they go into something it has to be about the deal it has to be my my advisory group of eight people including steve podowski and nate wagner and some others we've asked dozens of questions to make sure we hopefully didn't miss too many important things while we were looking at buying it before we committed and we go ahead and we then buy the building and so we we have a a four million dollar fund that we use to go buy the building and then after we own it we then syndicate it because if you're tie if you tie up a building for 30 days of due diligence and then have to close 30 days after that's 60 days i don't want to be under the pressure of having it's a pressure cooker of having to raise the money our average deal is three million so we, we have to have 60 investors at 50,000 average each. And that's almost impossible to do while doing due diligence where we're not even sure we're buying it. Yeah, yeah. So the $4 million fund buys the property with 3 million of that. And then over the next few weeks, I go to people after we own it and I say, we're, we already own this, we're syndicating it. And then I have, to, I have to tell the exact story and all the facts. And I put together a really simple private placement memorandum. It says eight percent. Uh, in this case, we we were raising thirteen million, and it's just one of these things where um, everybody wants to know that I know the details, but they trust me because they know I've been through that calamity, and then I want to avoid it, which is why we do these things with either zero debt or very little debt. And hey, Joel, I trust you. I'll put in two fifty. Got it. Yeah. Now I have to come through for them and make sure it's a good deal. And when you when you when you go out, I mean, so you buy the property outright. Let's say you've you've paid three million. How much of it do you syndicate out? Do you do you keep a certain percentage of your own money in the deal? Yeah, we keep five percent. So ninety five percent of it gets syndicated. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I have I have a consistent group that goes into every deal. That's about twenty five uh, investors. And then the other 30 or 40 are made up of people who go into this one and not the next one, and then the next yeah. one, and not the next two. But the consistent ones like Steve Podowski and Nate Wagner and that other group, I can pretty much count on on them to do between them about a million. And I keep uh, 5%, which is 150. So I've got a million 150 of the 3 million, let's say. Got it. So I have yeah. to get a million eight fifty from the other investors, and sometimes I put the minimum at a hundred thousand, so I need eighteen investors. But that never works. The, people look at the hundred, and maybe two thirds of them will put the hundred in because it's a suggestion. But I've got a Florida Palm Beach guy who's very very wealthy, and he says, "Joel, if you won't take twenty five from me, I'm not going in." I like to have a lot of diversification, and so I said, "Yeah, sure, you, you can do that." Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean at the end of the day, somebody's offering you money, you don't want to be saying no. <laughs> well, and and I have a guy from Boston that I met through a referral and he put 25,000 into a deal about 6 months ago. In my new deal recently, the 13 million dollar one, he said, "Well, I'm glad you finally did a bigger deal. Now I'm in for 300." Which nice. If I didn't yeah. take the 25, I never would have had the relationship to go to the 300,000 with him. Yeah, it just shows you, doesn't it? Yeah, what goes around comes around. Yeah, yeah. And tell me this, uh, Joel. The the you know for the people that are listening that don't know much about industrial logistics, warehousing, what are the characteristics of it that you find so attractive? Well, everything in the world is made in an industrial building, and everything's warehoused and stored in an industrial building, and is shipped out of an industrial building. So. I'm looking at your bookcase behind you. Every one of those books, every one of the the acrylic awards, uh, the the neon thing, the, you've got one of those uh, rollers for lint. 
Yeah. Everything is made in an industrial building. Every component of your cell phone, every component of a microphone. You look at your microphone, there's 30 parts in there. And every one of them is made by some company, usually privately owned, family owned business that makes one component. So that's the backbone of the world economy is entrepreneurial manufacturers. Yeah, Our buildings house those companies. We've got 20 manufacturers in our buildings right now, and they make anything from protein bars, which is a food business. This guy, uh, there's a, a show here in the States called Shark Tank. I know, yeah. Okay, and he was on Shark Tank in year one, and he's built this $15 million business, which is great. And then another company that's owned by Bunzel, which is on the London Stock Exchange, B-U-N-Z-L, and they own a company that's a tenant of ours that makes safety products for the welding industry. Think of right. how specific that is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we bought that building from the family that originally started the business and sold it to Bunzel. So now we've got Bunzel's financial backing of our tenant. And it's interestingly, it's a $2.7 million deal, fits in right with our, our average. And it's all cash, no mortgage. My investment's 135000 because that's exactly 5%. And we've got about 50 investors all together. And they pay the rent consistently. It's an 8% return. And we distribute quarterly 2%. And these companies, uh, they stay and stay and stay because they can't leave for two reasons. We call them sticky, sticky tenants. They have machines they don't want to pick up and move because it's too expensive. And they have a labor force at that location that they can't afford to lose because these are trained workers. Yeah. And they've been there for so long that a lot of the people who work there live nearby. So it's a very local business. And this company keeps renewing their lease. They've been there since the 1970s. Wow. So they keep renewing their lease. Scratch that, 1980s. Uh, the guy started the business in, in the 1970s, and then he sold it to Bunzel uh, a while back. So yeah, they're, they're, there's geometry. Industrial buildings are good if they have loading docks, high ceilings, and the number one thing, good parking. Yeah. If you don't parking. have good parking, you can't have your employees because people don't walk to work, they drive. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. And, and do you ever build or do you always buy already built? I've built 30 buildings and I have sworn it off. It's just too much trouble. It's a lot of work. You're dealing with arbitrary villages, municipalities. They like to throw their weight around. They they hold you up on your permit. You need a, you need a building permit to build it. For that, you have to have an architect draw it up and then you have to have a builder bid it. And then you have to go in for the permit. And by the time you're done, there's so much risk in development compared to just buying a building. Yeah, no, I, I would I would go along with that. The only one of the one of the benefits, I guess, because I, I have developed industrial before, one of the benefits of it is that it goes up so fast compared to any other type of construction. I mean, if you build a residential property, even your own home will take a year to build compared to you know, four months, six months, and you've got a building that's fully operational because it's a big mechano set. It's like a big shed usually, and it's quite quick to build. So you but have yeah. you have industrial experience. I didn't know that. Yeah, I have a little bit, not not a huge amount. My experience is mostly in the office sector, and we the, the it's funny the business park that I operate that we developed from from scratch. We actually bought a landfill and turned it into forty acres of office park. But oh. the we were originally granted a permit for planning that was going to be light industrial. So we we initially started out thinking this will be a big industrial park. And in the end, it made more sense to do an office park. And so that's uh, that's kind of the history there. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. How's it? How's the office going right now? Not great. <laughs> I wish I was in industrial right now. The, uh, the 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 sector is just really struggling to recover. And this is one of the reasons why I really wanted to speak with you because industrial, logistics, warehousing, it's it's doing so well at the moment 
comparatively to office because I can remember when I started my career, industrial was kind of seen as the second class asset compared with office. Office was kind of like the real A-rated kind of uh, asset that all of the big institutions wanted to be owners of. And industrial, the the yields were always much, much softer and everything about industrial made it feel like it was considered second rate to office. And that has changed very much. Yeah, yeah. What I like about industrial, I've heard this stated, I belong to an organization, international, uh, including members in uh, Ireland, uh, called the Society of Industrial and Office Realtors. There's several thousand members. And we are all people who've been in the business a long time. And we refer business to each other. And we have uh, meetings. We have conferences. The last conference was in Chicago about a month ago. And a thousand industrial and office people came. And the thing that was stated that was so interesting is with industrial buildings, the reason that they're doing so well now after COVID and because of the internet and is because industrial people have to go to work. Office people don't have to go anymore. They can yeah. do what we're doing. They can do it uh, uh, by by Zoom or by Microsoft uh, meetings. And teams, yeah. But you, but industrial, you can't make stuff and assemble it unless you're there. So that's one of the big things that has saved industrial and that I think is going to help it be good for the future is mm-hmm. you, if you have a meat plant, I've got a guy who's, who's doing a $35 million um, development of a, a meat processing plant. That stuff doesn't get processed by itself. You know, yeah. they, they, it's a horrible sounding thing, but they slaughter animals in a different location and they ship them to Chicago and he's got 80 butchers who chop, 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 and they make the ribs and they make the ham and they make the bacon. That doesn't happen by itself. So, all 80 of them have to be there. Yeah. As opposed to if he had a business where he was brokering meat from an office, half the people might not show up because they're working from home. They might even be in a different city from where he's located. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, There's a huge advantage. And the other thing is, well, and I don't think people realized it until the COVID pandemic, is that you still have to ship and, you know, the businesses like Amazon and stuff, they all like accelerated their business because they had warehousing and they could just ship stuff and everyone was buying online from home. And I mean, the economy, the world economy just continued to kind of putter along uh, because industrial logistic warehouses. And because of that, you can see the way some of these guys have all grown now. They've doubled the size of their footprint and warehousing. And, and another aspect as well, I think, a lot of people, a lot of governments were surprised by the supply chain uh, constraints that they suddenly saw. And and when you needed, you know, protective clothing in the hospitals and they couldn't get it, suddenly they're realizing this is stupid having to buy this stuff from China where people are hijacking our orders and we got to take that stuff home and we got to be, you know, self-reliant and we got to have, you know, a year of stockpiled in a, in some warehouse somewhere, you know? Yeah, that's called reshoring or onshoring. Onshoring, yeah. Yeah, and if they make it here in Mexico, uh, south of the border, that's called nearshoring. Right. Because they can have a truck bring it over in three hours from just over the border. Whereas if it comes from China, it has to go across the sea and through the, the Panama Canal or it has to unload in San Francisco or in L.A. and then get shipped by rail or truck all around the country so this reshoring where people locate their businesses especially very large companies there are three main things believe it or not number one is electrical grid if there's not enough electric in a location you can't move your business there and there are places where there's just not enough capacity of electric if you plugged in your machines and enough companies were to move there it would overwhelm it which is really Terrible. The second one is um, highways and, na- and natural resources, you know, the, the geographic element. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the third one is regulation. Regulation. There are places that are friendly to businesses and places where they're not. 
And one of the great things about Chicago is our natural resources are great. The Lake, Lake Michigan is unlimited um, fresh water for food companies. Right. And the government here is not as bad as in other places. They'll, they won't fight companies about requirements. California, you could wait two and a half years to get permission to do something. Yeah, I've heard California is so restrictive. It's it's one of the reasons why so many businesses are pulling out and moving to Texas and stuff. Where the regulations are easier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a main consideration. But labor, labor is another one. Labor is probably right in there, maybe number four. Interesting. Yeah. And and tell me this, uh, Joel, the, I mean, when you buy a, an industrial warehouse or are you just buying it for the income stream and nothing else? Or do you try to make improvements to, to add value to it? I would say the value add is one out of every four that we do, but it's minor value add. It's like maybe a new roof if the roof leaks or maybe fix up the office a little bit because there's always an office component in the front where they have their administrative and sales and accounting. But no, um, we buy them and hopefully lease them as is to our tenants. The Shark Tank guy, Element Bars is the name of the company. He leased 50,000 feet from us in the city. And he took the building as is. He, he did his own carpet and his own paint in the office. And in the warehouse, he had about a half a million dollars worth of build out because you have to have rooms for allergens these days a lot of people have allergies peanuts nuts eggs whatever and they can't cross contaminate so he had to build out in the back these rooms where he would isolate certain kinds of foods that if they got into the the protein bars it could kill somebody so 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 many nuances yeah wow yeah so many so he just took it as is and fixed it up himself and he came in and we we signed a four-year lease and his rent was $6 a foot net, which for that area at that time was um, reasonable. And now his lease is coming up and he's renewing the lease. He's trying to, he doesn't want to move. He's already got his 60 people working there and all of his machines and the allergen rooms and his office people. He doesn't want to move. And rents have gone up about 50 to 70% since wow. he signed the lease four years ago. So the six is now... 10 or nine. Yeah. 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 And he's very angry with me because I told him, you know, we're going to be a great landlord, but what do I do? The the rent has gone up. If he moves out, I can lease it probably for 11. You get you. So he wants to pay seven. (laughs) So we're, we're having a discussion. I love the guy, but I represent my investors. And by the way, he invested with me in two other buildings Okay. Literally a million dollars. And I said to him, so Jonathan, if we, you and I own a building and a tenant wants to stay and they're paying six bucks, but the market's 11 because I like the tenant, should I go to them and say, we'll do it at seven? And he said, well, that's not the point. I'm me and that's them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I was thinking he'd say. And it's funny you say this because, um, I mean, we have in Ireland, we have something, you know, very similar situation. But we would try to get people to sign longer leases. Uh, what is your kind of average lease length out there? Four years seems short to me. All of our leases are short. The longest okay. that we ever do is 10 years. One of the ways that tenants handle that is they ask for an option to renew. Right. But I don't want to lock in a rate for 15 years because who knows what the rent's going to be at that time. So what we do is we give them, say, a 10-year lease with a five-year option to renew, but the option is at market rent. Yeah, yeah. At that time, we have to find, you know, the SIOR, Society of Industrial and Office Realtors, what we do is we have a little paragraph that says, to determine the rent, you hire an SIOR to give his opinion, and we'll hire one to give his opinion, and then we'll compare the two to see what the market rent is. And if they're far apart, the two of them appoint a third SIOR and they give him trader. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he comes up with a binding number, but we don't want to go too long. And and most tenants don't want to go too long because they're afraid they're going to grow. And if they grow, they commit for too long, they're stuck. So I'd say our typical lease is five years. 
That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's it the world has changed because when I started my career, 25 years was the standard. And what we had was every five years there was an open market rent review, but it was upward only. So you could never go down, but you could always go up. <laughs> we call that we call that a floor. Yeah, the floor, yeah. Floor, it, yeah. Those days are gone, unfortunately. And and now we have these big American tech companies coming in and signing office leases. And the maximum they're prepared to sign is we'll say maybe 15, but they will insist on having a break at year seven or something like that. So they can walk away at seven at seven years if they want, you know. With a payment with a penalty of some kind. Yeah. Sometimes it depends on the negotiating hand that they have. Like sometimes they'll they only have to give us notice. Other times they have to pay us six months rent as a penalty or things like that, you know. So it, as you know, it's all a, a bit of a horse trade. It's really who who has the advantage at the day that this, the lease has been signed. That was Steve Podolsky's actual term. He when he taught me the business, he said, We horse trade. And I said, What does that mean? <laughs> said, well, in the old days they used to trade horses. <laughs> you know, and when and that term long in the tooth, you know, yeah, that, that, that that's came from the from horse. Old. Older horses had, I guess there's a recession of their gums and their teeth are bigger. So, oh, this horse is long in the tooth. I'm going to pay you less for this horse. I'll trade you my three horses here for you, your four horses here. Yeah. Yeah. Horse trading. It's the same thing. It's funny you say that because my my sister is has been into horses her whole life and she's she's a real expert. She has about, I think she has eight horses and um she she would go to these kind of places where they sell horses, the horse trading kind of shows and fairs and stuff. And she'd go in and they would see this young girl walking in and they'd be thinking, oh, we'll sell her, you know, this old knacked, knacker of a horse. And we'll and we will uh, we will kind of like, you know, screw her over, basically. And she would have a look at the foot and she'd have a look at the mouth and she'd say, this horse isn't anything like this, what you're saying. This horse is like 10 years older or whatever. So she she was very good. And, and that's exactly it. Long in the tooth. She was an expert in her market. Like well, that's you it. Were, exactly. Right? And and that's actually what I wanted to get back to, Joel, because you, you mentioned at the very outset that you were hyper-focused. Laser-focused was your word. And I'm just, I mean, can you give some advice in, you know, to our listeners starting out their career I mean, you you have booked the trend that I've seen, and it and it's nice to actually see people doing something different for a change. No debt, that's obviously booking the trend, but also everybody looks, you know, all over the place, and they want to have like a big, wide kind of geographic geographical area that they invest in. You're laser focused, and you you know all of the buildings in a very small kind of geographic area, and that's your advantage. Can you give us some advice and some tips for others? Yeah. When I buy a building, when I'm about to buy a building, I literally personally go door to door in the neighborhood. I, I, I call it like a farm. It's almost like a farm that you're where you're working the farm, you're planting the seeds and you, you, you uh, harvest the crops. And so every sub market Submarket meaning uh, a couple of towns together, sort of like west of the tollway or um, five towns together that are just east of the airport. That's a submarket. And it's critical in our business to know everything that's happening in the submarket. So there are 300 industrial real estate brokers in Chicago because it's a 1.5 billion square foot market. It's huge. No one can be an expert in the entire Chicago market. And by the way, once you're an expert, three weeks later, you're not an expert anymore because something new happened. Yeah. A new a new sale and the, the comparables change. So I actually do personally uh, learn my little farm area whenever I'm considering buying a property. And maybe I knew the area 10 years ago, but it's so different today. Here's what I did. Uh, this, this property that we're buying on the Chicago, that we bought on the Chicago River, it was a $13 million deal, but it was three buildings. It was my biggest deal in a long time. Each building, though, was a part of that $13 million. 
And what I did was I went there and parked my car in the industrial park. And I went to every neighbor personally. I just walked in and I said, I'm buying the buildings across the street or I'm buying the buildings next door. And I would learn from them about their business, what they're planning to do, uh, how much they're paying in rent or how much they paid for the building and what they think it's worth. And that is reconnaissance. That is like almost military reconnaissance. And so for me, the advice that I would give to somebody who's thinking of doing any deal anywhere is walk around, just walk around, walk around, even if it's a, a, a mile radius over a period of a few weeks, uh, whether it's industrial or whether it's any other type of real estate, each submarket's different. And so I actually discovered by doing that, I took the grandson of one of my big investors, Nate Wagner's grandson, Ari, on one of these walkarounds. And I said, we're going to go walk around and I'm going to show you how I learned the market before your family puts a million bucks in. And he said, oh, okay. I said, have you ever made a cold call before? He says, no, I'm a paralegal. So, <laughs> which I knew. So we walk into a building and there's this guy standing there and there are all these car parts. And I just, we walked in the open overhead door. We didn't even go to the front door. We just walked in, which is risky because you can get shot. In America, we've got lots of guns. You can get yeah. shot. So we walked in and this guy's standing there and I said, hey, who do I talk to about whether you guys might want to sell this building? He said, I do. <laughs> just like that. Just like that. I looked at Ari. I said, this is the first and only time that you're going to walk into a building having never done it and have someone say, say yes, I want to sell my building. <laughs> so we found out he had a he had an agent, a broker, and we called his broker, Paul. And Paul said, we're asking a million three hundred thousand for the building. And I know the neighborhood because I've been walking around and I said, it's worth nine hundred thousand. He says, well, I know that. But the owner wanted me to ask a million three. I said, well, I'm offering nine hundred nine hundred thousand dollars. And he came back. He said, make that nine fifty and you got a deal. So that's how it's done, in my opinion learning the submarket, who the neighbors are, really important. And then we went across the street to another building and I asked, who are the owners? I want to talk to them because we're buying the buildings right around the corner. And these two guys both came downstairs from an office and said, come upstairs and let's sit. And we went upstairs and sat with them. And I said, how would you like to sell your building? They said, no, we don't want to sell it. We've been here a long time. And they were in the business of um, manufacturing a product. And I, I, I knew what the product was. I can't say what it is because I'm under a confidentiality agreement. And if they ever see this, they'd kill me. But the next day after we left, I said to Ari, so you don't make, you don't get to make all the deals. The next day, Jim, one of the two guys calls me in the morning and he says, we didn't want to say anything. And my partner and I wanted to talk about it first, but our long-term plan is to sell the building and lease it back because we don't want to own the real estate anymore. Would you consider buying it and giving us a long-term lease? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sale and lease back, we call it. Yeah, yeah. Sale and lease back. So that's my answer is the, the, the laser focus is more than just saying laser focus. How do you do it in my in my world? I just walk around and I meet people. And it's so interesting because I'll meet somebody and I'll give them the book. I'll say, we're buying the property three doors away. And they'll say, oh, can I invest? I'll put yeah. 50000 in. I like the neighborhood. So there's so many reasons to to just build those relationships. There's a lot to be said for that. I think we we call we have a, a saying and it's just we call it shoe leather. And it's it's just walking and walking and walking and knocking on doors and just not being afraid to introduce yourself. Yeah, you have to be fearless. There are people who can't do it. There are people who can't do it. When I first worked for Steve Podolsky, he hired one of my good friends. We were in our 20s. And my friend couldn't do it. And I walked into the washroom and someone's sitting in a stall in one of the toilet stalls crying. It was him. I heard this crying and I said, everything okay in there? And I recognized my friend's voice. I, I said... What's the matter? He says, I can't do this. I don't have the I don't have the constitution, the, the 
emotional ability to be vulnerable enough to walk in and get shot down nine out of 10 times. He says, I can't stay in this business. And he got out and he became a photographer. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh, I mean, the, the sales business in general is, is pretty tough. I mean, you have to be able to accept rejection time after time after time and still be as enthusiastic about the ninth time as you were at the first. <laughs> you are so right. Yeah, you know it. You're the Tell voice of experience. You are the voice of experience. You I've been around like yourself, Joe. Tell me, Joe, let's, uh, I'm, I'm conscious of time. Let's just, uh, normally I like to ask a couple of questions. What's the best advice that you've had to date in your career? I would say um, ask really great questions. A very close friend of mine said a really cool statement. It's if you ask the right question, you've already got half the answer. Yeah, that's a good point. And and, and on that related topic, you're you know you've been in this business now for about was it forty years at this stage. Would you, if you had an opportunity, let's say they invent time travel and you had an opportunity to sit in front of 20-year-old Joe, what advice would you give your younger self? Learn how to play the guitar and the piano and become a musician. <laughs> Love music. And I'm so, I'm so illiterate in music, but I think I would have loved being a songwriter and performer in music. I just... I missed the boat. <laughs> well, that's a different answer to what we were expecting, but it, it'll do just fine. Joel, thanks so much. If somebody wanted to learn more about you or reach out on, on, on the internet or whatever, what, what's the best way to find you? Our website is Brit Properties, B-R-I-T, which is more appropriate for you than for me. Brit well, not, not me being Irish, but the, the British people, we have a good audience here of Brits as well. <laughs> I know you're closer to them than we are. Britproperties.com, uh, which by the way, is named after one of my very special property managers. When I started the company, uh, I needed a property manager. His name was Brad and we named the company for Brad. Brad really is terrific. B-R-I-T. Nice. You you like your acronyms anyway. I do. I really do. <laughs> and uh, and are you on social media at all or is that uh, for a younger man's game? Uh, my son's in the business and he's playing around with that. I like the podcasts. I like to watch them and I like to be on them and meet interesting people. But we're not Facebook people. We're, we're not uh, doing any of the Google ads or any of that. It, it's all our whole business is is referrals. And yeah. and walking around and meeting people. Those are the two. Yeah. That's what I kind of, it's, it's local. It's all about local. Yeah. Well, Joel, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And uh, I think we've got some great insights from our conversation today. So thank you so much. Thank you, Gavin. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joel today. It um, I found it really, really insightful, especially all of the talk about the difficulties. And isn't it funny how the best lessons are often got from the most difficult circumstances that you have gone through? And so definitely well worth considering some of the advice given today in uh, my discussion with Joel. Uh, guys, until next time, remember patience and discipline. Stay grounded and I'll catch you in the next one. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the join my tribe thing over on the right hand side this will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter all of these links are in the show notes below that's all for now i will see you guys in the next episode